of Ideas. The following discussion was held on the 17th of March 2022, hosted by the Academy of Ideas and the Free Speech Union to launch Jakob Maschengama's new book, Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. In the chair is Claire Fox. So, um, good evening everyone. Um, <coughs> welcome to this joint event organised by the Academy of Ideas and the Free Speech Union, Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. I'm Claire Fox, I'm the Director of the Academy of Ideas, and I'd like to wish you all a happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> now, when I was a bit younger, St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick's Night, I'd be on the Raz <laughs> and having a really good time. And, and then I thought, oh, tonight I'm chairing a book launch. <laughs> and the truth is, I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> I don't think it's my age because I'm actually genuinely honoured to be able to introduce you to Jacob Mashangama and his new book. Because I think it's an important book for all of us. And I've got the, I've got the kind of like pre-launch book and it's got on the back 17th of March 2022. So we are actually the launch of this book in the UK. And I'm delighted you're here with me and I'm chuffed to be chairing. Now, for purposes of buying, it looks like that now that it's properly out, right? So I, I want to tell you a little bit about Jacob. He's a long-standing friend of the Academy of Ideas. He's spoken at lots of our events over the years, and we've always found him to be a fantastically insightful thinker and speaker. He's a lawyer, a free speech and human rights advocate. He's the director of Justidia, which I think is not pronounced in that way, and it's, which is a Copenhagen... <laughs> what's it, how's it pronounced? Well, uh, your yeah. teacher. But. Yeah, thank you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know me. Uh, he's a, um, he's, it, which is a Co Copenhagen-based think tank. And Jacob's also a visiting fellow at the renowned uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education in Washington, one of my favourite organisations, FIRE. And he's the narrator also of 40-plus episode podcast which is really excellent which is called clear and present danger a history of free speech which effectively the book is based on but those podcasts you should really listen to them all share them with people they're a fantastic contribution to the things that we are all involved in and jacob's going to speak for 15 20 minutes and then we've got two respondents so let me introduce you to them we've got toby young who of course um, most of you will certainly know who's the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. He, the Free Speech Union, led by Toby, has really made an enormous impact on the UK. Its practical legal defence for Free Speech Union members has been invaluable. And there are actually people who've had their jobs saved because of the work of the Free Speech Union. And there are people who feel safer speaking out because they know the Free Speech Union exists. But also, the Free Speech Union has become invaluable in the way that it's worked with and been involved in particular projects like the Free Speech Champions, which it works with the BOI charity, which is working with students on campus who want to speak out against cancel culture, but also does lots of really invaluable uh, uh, research and brings out papers on forthcoming legislation. 
which as I found myself in the unlikely position of being a legislator has become very important to me. Um, Toby's also the associate editor of The Spectator and he is also the author, as people will know, of the blog dailyskeptic.org, which has been a phenomenal, huge, important source of people not going mad for the last uh, two years. Um, we're also joined by uh, Dr. Joanna Williams. Uh, jo is the director of the independent think tank CIO. So I don't even know how to say that. Keo, so I don't know how to say that one either. So it's not, <laughs> it's not me being xenophobic or anything. Right, um, uh, and... Uh, Keo publishes original essays, um, uh, and is everybody that you talk to will have read one of those essays, been influenced by them. They're, they're really innovative and make a, a, an attempt at digging beneath the sort of obvious ways of understanding things. And one particularly on higher education is uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, jo is also a prolific author. You will have read her all over the place in all of the mainstream press, uh, regularly contributes to... Uh, spiked as well, and is a regular on TV and radio. She's written a lot of books, but her most uh, recent one, which is about to be published, or is just being published, is The Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance, and reason. Apart from the fact that The Woke One is a bit depressing, uh, I'm going to ask Joe to talk a little bit about what the, how The Woke One I can't believe my own notes. How the weight won. But anyway, the point is that you're saying they won. I don't want them to have won. Um, the point I was going to make was that I think the more uh, we have in terms of proper scholarship around these issues that we're all interested in, so we don't just kind of use the slogans, the better. Which is why, actually, Jacob's book is so important, because it's actually a great work of scholarship. It's eminently readable. It's packed full of uh, facts and stories about individuals. It's got loads of insights and arguments that make it an invaluable tool, I think, for all of us uh, in the free speech wars. And I, I don't know about you, but I really feel that we need better arguments. We need uh, greater depth. We need the full scope of history uh, to win over a new generation to the cause of free speech. And so I hope you'll buy the book, but also use it as a practical way of intervening in the world and you can buy it at the end Jacob will be signing it and so on just very quickly a little context on on, on um, what tonight's discussion is, is, is set against which is there's a war going on at the heart of Europe and we all know that the first casualty um, of war is truth but in the midst of this war and I'm sure that there'll be lots of discussion on the war and so on in the pub afterwards and people are quite preoccupied and have got various takes on it. But one thing we know is that we have to be careful of censorship in relation to the war, people using censorship to justify their positions on the war. So we know that censorship is the norm in Russia. Um, it's also becoming a feature of what our take was in, in certainly in the UK and Europe with various websites and things being banned. There's been a big assault on academics in, in the UK for their position of being allegedly Putin apologists. And although a number of those academics, I think, are saying ridiculously daft things, that's not the point, is it? You have to defend their right to say things that you disagree with. But also today, the British government has published its new online harms bill. And 
Some of us believe that that online harms bill is one of the greatest threats to free speech in modern times. And I'm not using hyperbole there. It really is very dangerous. And no doubt the Free Speech Union will be updating its insights into why it's a danger. But you could say that that backdrop, and me saying that's the context to the launch of Jacob's book, means that actually I'm being a little bit parochial. I've talked about a British piece of legislation, and I've talked about a war that's going on now. It's a bit here and now. And one of the fantastic things about the book is that it has shaken up my obsession with what's happening now and what's happening here because it gives you the most fantastic wide sweep of history. It puts the fight for free speech into that historical perspective, and it's also wonderfully international and global in scope. So that's why we should give a warm welcome to Jacob and ask him to give his introduction. Thank you so much, Claire, and uh, thank you to the Academy of Ideas, thank you to the Free Speech Union, thank you to my uh, wonderful publisher, Sarah Caro there, to, to Amy for all your hard work on, 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 on putting the book out there. Uh, I, uh, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to a lot of people who've, who've been working hard on this book. I'm also delighted to be back in London. I haven't been here since 2019 for obvious uh, reasons. Uh, I love coming here. Uh, I normally come here at least twice a year, so uh, I have withdrawals. So, so it's a great pleasure, uh, an honor, and a privilege uh, to, uh, to, to be here, even if it is a bit of a sad day with the, uh, with the draft online uh, harms uh, bill being uh, presented today. But then again, this country has played uh, a um, schizophrenic role in the history of free speech, I would say, with some of the greatest champions uh, and some of the greatest developments, but also uh, developments that tend to go to, to, to pull in the, in the opposite direction. I, I might get, get back to that. <clears throat> um, but if you ask someone uh, in a democracy, many will, will, will say that, that free speech is, is the lifeblood of, of democracy. But we're still at a, at a moment where many elites in politics, in academia, in the media, that once cherished free speech point to unmediated, especially online uh, speech, whether disinformation or hatred, as evidence that free speech is being weaponized against democracy itself. Or, to quote the British academic Anthony Leaker, free speech is in fact a myth, an ideological tool employed by those in power to sustain existing power relations. Now, this is not mere talk. In this country, as we've talked about, the draft online safety bill looks set to crack down both on illegal and the nebulous category of legal but harmful speech, uh, while the Law Commission has recommended extending the crime of stirring up hatred to include new categories, whether LGBT+, disability, sex, and gender. Overnight, the European Union just prohibited Russian state-sponsored uh, disinformation. Um, so no ordinary users within the Union can no longer search, access, or share uh, RT or Sputnik. Even if you want to counter Russian disinformation, you are not allowed to, to, to access it. In Germany, the, the Network Enforcement Act has inspired worldwide censorship of the internet and been copy-pasted in authoritarian states like Russia, Venezuela, and Turkey. And in a polarized cultural environment, groups on both the right and the left, 
seek to purge their ideological opponents from universities and cultural institutions. Now, I want to argue that while some of the concerns raised are real, if sometimes rather exaggerated, abandoning free speech on the ash heap of history is a cure worse than the disease. Now, I will acknowledge that free freedom of speech can be exploited to amplify division, sow distrust, and inflict serious harm. But the view that today's fierce challenges to democratic institutions and values can be overcome by rolling back free speech is deeply misguided. The laws and norms that protect free speech still constitute the great bulwark of liberty, as the British essayist Thomas Gordon wrote in Cato's, letters number, Cato's letter number 15 in 1721, which became an Enlightenment meme that inspired revolutionaries and radicals from America to France and Russia. But if not maintained, a bulwark can break, and without free, without free speech, our future will be less free, democratic, and equal, and more ignorant, autocratic, and oppressive. And so in the following, I'll highlight some of the most important points of the book that I hope can contrib contribute to bolster the case for free speech and counter the argument for its restriction. The first point is the recurrent phenomenon of elite panic. Now, new communication technology is inevitably disruptive, and every new advancement from the printing press to the internet has been opposed by those whose institutional authority is vulnerable to being undermined by sudden change. Let's go back to 1525 and the great humanist scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam, who himself was a prodigious writer. Now, he complained that printers filled the world with pamphlets and books, foolish, ignorant, malignant, libelous, mad, impious, and subversive. In 1858, the New York Times lamented that the transatlantic telegraph was superficial, sudden, unsifted, too fast for the truth. In 2006, the US junior senator, Barack Obama of Illinois, praised the internet, which allowed him to say what I want without censorship, and social media would play an important role in his rise to the presidency. But 14 years later, after the presidential election of 2020, Obama declared online disinformation the single biggest threat to our democracy. Such outbreaks of elite panic may reflect real concerns and dilemmas, but it is notable that they tend to erupt whenever the public sphere is expanded and previously marginalized groups are given a voice. Upon the introduction of new technology that gives access to those previously unheard, the traditional gatekeepers of public opinion fear that the newcomers will be manipulated and the masses will manipulate the masses through dangerous ideas and propaganda, threatening the established social and political order. Now, the roots of this class between an egalitarian versus an elitist conception of free speech stretches all the way back to antiquity. It originated in the difference between the Athenian democracy, where ordinary free and male citizens were given a direct voice in political uh, decision-making, and the freedom to speak frankly in public. You can contrast that with Roman republicanism, which limited free speech to a small elite and distinguished between liberty and licentiousness of the tongue. But while there have always been those who, sought, <coughs> who, been those who thought of free speech as a luxury only fit to those who were educated or wealthy, there have also been those who were prepared to fight a long fight to, ex to expand free speech to include the poor and propertyless, foreigners, women, 
and religious, racial, ethnic, national, and sexual minorities, all of whom were once thought too credulous, fickle, immoral, ignorant, or dangerous to have a voice in public affairs. And this leads me to my second point. One of the reasons why an increasing number of younger people are uncomfortable with untrammeled free speech is a genuine concern for minorities and a belief that free speech entrenches unequal power relations favoring the powerful at the expense of the powerless. But the idea that robust free speech and equality are mutually exclusive is, I believe, dangerously misguided. In fact, history demonstrates that the values of free speech and equality are mutually reinforcing. I would actually go so far to claim that free speech may very well be the most empowering engine of human equality ever stumbled upon by our species. It is no coincidence that in the, 1960, that in the 1640s, the levelers in this country combined the radical demands for universal male suffrage with advocacy for press freedom and universal tolerance and protested the creeping authoritarianism of Cromwell's rule. To the levelers, censorship ever ushered in a tyranny, men's mouths being kept from making noise while they're being robbed of their liberty. And so even the least restraint upon the press must be removed since the people cannot enjoy liberty if stopped from speaking, writing, printing, and publishing their minds freely. Even so, as late as the first half of the 19th century in this country, advocating for universal suffrage and religious toleration could lead to draconian punishments. My favorite example is the deist Richard Carlyle. Now, he spent a total of six years in prison for blasphemy for the awful crime of selling the works of Tom Paine to the lower classes. <clears throat> but it was not God or religion that needed protection. It was the established order of the British class-based society. Now, according to the Attorney General, in, the, in one of the cases where, where Carlyle was sentenced to three years in prison, uh, prosecuting Carlyle was necessary, and I quote, for protecting the lower and illiterate classes from having their faith sapped and their minds divested from those principles of morality which are so powerfully inculcated by the Christian religion. When such terrible productions are put into the hands of those who, unlike the rich, the informed, and the powerful, are unable to draw distinctions between ingenious, though mischievous, arguments and divine truth, the consequences are too frightful to be contemplated. Uh, and the jury, of course, agreed, and uh, Carlyle was hauled off uh, to, to, to prison for, 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 for three years. Now, <clears throat> British colonialism also relied heavily on policing speech crimes like sedition and provoking enmity and hatred between different classes in order to quell dissent across the empire. And one of the victims of this policy was none other than Mahatma Gandhi. Now, Gandhi may have rejected guns, but the principles of free speech and association were among the most powerful weapons in his arsenal, constituting what he called the two lungs that are absolutely necessary for a man to breathe the oxygen of liberty. But <clears throat> Gandhi's uh, call for social change were suffocated by the British, and he was sentenced to six years in prison for sedition for writing newspaper uh, articles that opposed British rules. Now, at his trial, and I urge all of you to go and, and, and read his speech, Gandhi elo eloquently denounced British censorship and insisted on the right to freely criticize any system or person as long as no violence was promoted or incited. This means, and this was in 1921, this means that Mahatma Gandhi at the time advocated a conception of free speech 
that was vastly more protective than what followed even in America at the time, where people would be sent to, to prison for 10 or 20 years for opposing American involvement in, in World War I. So, so um, next time someone says that uh, free speech is, is a value for, for old white men, um, please uh, remind them of, uh, of, of, of Gandhi. But you might also point to South Africa, where South African apartheid rested on the systematic denial of free expression. This included the apartheid version of the Catholic Church Index of Forbidden, forbidden Books, which at one point included more than 20,000 titles. More than 1,600 apartheid activists, including Nelson Mandela, were subject to so-called banning orders, which allowed the government to prohibit individuals from speaking, writing, and attending public gatherings. Now, perversely, the apartheid regime had their own version of hate speech laws, but they were primarily designed to prevent quote, hateful attacks on the white man, which resulted in the banning of works like the televised version of Alex Haley's Roots. While suppression prevented Mandela and other activists from speaking out, a globalized world allowed international media, dissidents, and human rights organizations to speak for those whose voices had been muted. In 1994, Mandela won South Africa's first free and multiracial presidential election. And that year, Mandela also gave a speech highlighting the central role of free speech in defeating apartheid and as a value for the new multiracial South Africa. And I quote, No single person, no body of opinion, no political or religious doctrine, no political party or government can claim to have a monopoly on truth. It has therefore always been our contention that laws, mores, practices and prejudices that place constraints on free freedom of expression are a disservice to society. Note here that Mandela not only talks about laws, but also mores, prejudices, and practices, highlighting the fact that the culture of free speech is at least as important as the laws that, that define the legal limits. Now, I think it's undeniable that free speech has been instrumental in advancing racial justice, but racism and, and inequality are still with us today. And so it might be tempting to ensure equal dignity through laws intended to silence bigots and protect minorities from hatred and dehumanization. But on the one hand, <coughs> such ideas ignore that much of today's activism and advocacy for racial justice would have been banned or suppressed not that long ago, as we have seen. But another problem is that laws against hate speech are inherently vague, and so they're prone to entrench the values of dominant in-groups and marginalized out-groups. In 1965, the Race Relations Act prohibited incitement to racial hatred to protect minorities in this country. But one of the first persons to be prosecuted for this offense was a black Briton who called whites vicious and nasty people. Several other black Britons were prosecuted for anti-white hatred, while white anti-immigration groups and politicians were let off the hook, leading to increased racial unrest. Since then, the legal definition of hate speech has dramatically expanded. According to the European Court of Human Rights, it can include insults, ridicule, criticism of religion, denial of historical events, and even the failure to moderate offensive comments on a politician's social media account. In my home country of Denmark, offensive and derogatory statements based on gender identity have recently been criminalized. But once the principle of free speech is abandoned, any minority can end up being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against hatred and offense. 
In this country, radical feminists have been charged with offending LGBT plus people for arguing that there are biological differences between the sexes. While in France, an LGBT rights organization was fined for, for calling an opponent of same-sex marriage a homophobe. Such cases also undermine the credibility of democracies when they criticize illiberal states like Hungary and Poland for restricting speech deemed LGBT propaganda. For how can European democracies credibly lecture Russia, Turkey, or India for punishing political dissent when they themselves insist on the necessity of circumscribing speech? More broadly, the idea that free speech perpetuates unequal power relations and that restrictions on this freedom are needed to level the playing field is deeply misguided. In fact, free speech is the difference between a political system where a joke or a criticism of the political leader, ruling party, or dominant religion results in a one-way ticket to some distant gulag, and one where even the most powerful leader cannot punish the most powerless citizens, citizen for such irreverence. And allowing one group to punish the ideas of others doesn't, <coughs> doesn't equalize unequal power relations, but inverts them, ultimately creating new structures of oppression rather than abolishing them altogether. Christians were once a small and persecuted sect, but once Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, the church and Christian rulers turned the tables and persecuted both pagans and heretics. Socialists and communists were hounded and censored in much of Europe prior to the Russian Revolution. Stalin spent seven stints in Siberian exiles. But when the Bolsheviks grabbed political power, there was no room for dissent in the dictatorship of the proletariat, whose leaders persecuted not only enemies of the people, but the entire people in whose names they claimed to govern. And many an advocate of national self-determination was tried and convicted by British colonial-era laws against sedition and enmity. Today, British colonialism is gone, but colonial-era speech crimes have been left in place in places, in places like India and Hong Kong, and are now being recycled to shield New, the new indigenous rulers from the people whom decolonization was supposed to liberate. Of course, there are dilemmas of when and how democracy should react to movements who threaten to overthrow democracy. A robust com commitment to free speech should be accompanied with a zero-tolerance policy towards organized threats, intimidation, and violence by groups seeking to establish parallel systems of authority. Groups of thugs and armed militias policing the streets to challenge democratic institutions and enforce vigilante justice against ideological enemies are a clear and present danger to both democracy and free speech. But I think most important for the future of free speech is that those of us who have benefited from the unprecedented advances in human affairs, that 2,500 years of this counterintuitive and deeply consequential idea have helped bring about, resist the force of what I call free speech entropy. It is up to each of us to defend a culture of tolerant heretical ideas, to use our system of open vigilance to limit the reach of disinformation, to agree to disagree without resorting to harassment or hate, and to treat free speech as a principle to be upheld universally rather than a prop to be selectively invoked for narrow tribalist point scoring. Or to quote George Orwell, if large numbers of people are interested in freedom of speech, there will be freedom of speech even if the law forbids it. If a public opinion is sluggish, inconvenient minorities will be persecuted, even if laws exist to protect them. Thank you very much. Okay, rather than making this too formal, I just wanted to kind of just get in any initial thoughts from Toby and Joe. And I am obviously going to come out to the audience and 
I'll take kind of clumps of three or four, five people just to either ask questions or make quick points. But anyway, Toby, any initial thoughts? Um, well, I've just um, reviewed Jacob's book. Actually, I've been told that Jacob is the correct way to pronounce it in addition to everything else you got wrong. <laughs> um, so I've, just I've known him longer than you. <laughs> I've just reviewed Jacob's book for The Spectator, so I read it um, uh, last weekend um, and really enjoyed it. Um, and, um, uh, and there was so much that I learned um, uh, about free speech and about the history of free speech. And it was extraordinary how, how, how many historical echoes there were of the contemporary debates um, about free speech that we're all engulfed in. Um, one thing I, I thought that um, the things which really I latched onto and I've latched onto in my review are the various arguments you make um, to equip people on our side in this debate uh, with the kind of ammunition to uh, rebut the arguments made by what do you want to call them, um, the woke, wokers day, the kind of intersectionality cult, the people who think that free speech is um, uh, entrenches um, existing power differentials, props up the elite, helps male, pale and stale conservatives and disadvantages historically marginalised groups. And I thought there were kind of uh, lots of great arguments to take. You, you, you mentioned a few uh, yourself. Um, uh, the, the notion that, f that, that there's somehow a link between free speech and colonialism and white supremacy, that it's all rooted in this kind of horrific liberal individualism which has been used to kind of justify capitalism which has resulted in the kind of rape and pillage and exploitation of de the developing world. I mean, yeah, as you say, that would, that would be news to Nelson Mandela and uh, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, all of whom were passionate advocates of free speech and passionate opponents of British colonialism in particular, uh, but of racial injustice in all its forms. Um, I love the stuff about um, how ineffective the um, attempts to suppress Nazi bigotry were in Weimar Germany. Um, I mean, we're often told that to protect democracy, we need to suppress um, these far-right ethno-nationalists in order to prevent um, uh, the rise of another movement resembling the movement that tore Europe asunder uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And yet that was what was done in Weimar Germany. There were all kinds of laws criminalising anti-Semitism, outlawing uh, 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 Nazi bigotry in all its forms. Um, uh, Goebbels, um, uh, Julia Streicher spent time in prison. Goebbels was able to boast that Der Sturmer, or maybe it was another publication, was, was the most banned publication in Germany and made that a badge of honour and the attempt to suppress Hitler, to ban him from speaking in public, turned him into a martyr um, and did nothing to... Uh, you can't suppress bigotry um, by uh, silencing bigots. It doesn't work. Um, I like the um, stuff about um, uh, hate speech as well. That was fascinating. So I, I, did, I genuinely... Well, I, I, I knew only because I'd read you writing about this elsewhere and heard you talking about it in some of your podcasts, but uh, I, 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 I thought it was really surprising, and not many people know, um, that the concept of hate speech was devised by Stalin's apparatchiks in the United Nations in the 1940s uh, to, um, uh, to fetter the free speech clause in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that Eleanor Roosevelt and others were promoting. Uh, and uh, it was only when they actually asked these delegates uh, what they meant by hate speech, and they said, well, any defence of capitalism or Western liberal democracy, that they, they smelt a rat, you know. Um, uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt and others kind of made sure that 
the uh, right to free speech in this universal declaration wasn't qualified in that way, but subsequently it has been. And now the concept of free speech, again, of, of hate speech, again, is being invoked by the enemies of free speech to... I mean, you said that uh, it was ironic that the first person prosecuted um, under the Race Relations Act for stirring up uh, racial hatred or for, 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 uh, uh, was, was a black man. Similarly, I'm absolutely 100% sure that as soon as anti-misogyny laws are passed, probably first in Scotland and then the rest of the United Kingdom, Definitely. the first person to be prosecuted is going to be a woman, a gender-critical feminist who'll be accused of being misogynistic about a man in a dress. Right, OK. Um, so you've got to stop. You saw that was a tour de force, but there's a little bit of... You're doing spoilers. You're doing spoilers. I want them all to Sorry. buy the box. Well, I was just, I was just, so just, to, just, to, just to wrap it all up, I was just, I was just wanted to say that even though I think you make an, a very powerful case about, against the um, censors in our public square, I'm not sure that making reasonable, evidence-based arguments is the way to defeat them. I think it's part of the way. I think it's a really, it's, it's essential to do that, but it's not enough. Um, and often when you try and engage with people who make a lot of these arguments, which you rebut so successfully, they just don't listen. They don't want to hear it. Uh, and it's not that they, they're winning because um, they've won that argument. They've defeated those counter-arguments. They're winning because they have this kind of spurious authority. They speak from these pulpits. They pronounce almost as though they're reciting from the gospel, and they expect their word to be law. And just as you couldn't challenge a kind of Old Testament fundamentalist preacher with kind of Hume's arguments against miracles, similarly, it's not clear that this is going to be a, a completely effective way. I mean, humour and satire are incredibly effective. You look at the reaction of the right. kind of woke to um, Titania McGrath. I mean, you know, mm. I, can, I can spend hours, weeks, months setting out Jacob's brilliant rebuttals of all their spurious arguments. Water off the duck's back. One bit of piss-taking. One tweet by Titania McGrath. And they go mental. Completely mental. Right, okay. So that, that's effective. Anyway, so, right. so, so, okay. But, uh, so. but anyway, love the book. Uh, but I'm not sure that this... All the, the, that work, the, 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 and all you need to do is a tweet... May not be enough. <laughs> all you had to do was to be a satirical tweeter. And it would have been more effective. <laughs> not necessarily as right. effective. But, but anyway, actually, in all seriousness, what, in a way, responding to Toby, there is a point, is there? Is this for us to improve our arguments? It's not going to necessarily be read by people who are hostile to free speech. How do you see that, or does it not matter at all what the purpose is? Because it's important to just have that book in existence. A shameless self-promotion, obviously. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I obviously hope that it will um, that it will change minds and, and be part of, of, of conversations. But I also uh, acknowledge that you know not every person in the world is going to read. 400 pages on the history of free speech, going back to uh, the Athenian democracy. Uh, I just think, um, as you mentioned, there are, there are a lot of bad arguments out there, even by supposed experts and so on. So I think, you know, if I can contribute to to at least setting the record straight uh, on, on on that, I think that is that is helpful, and and hopefully it can also provide arguments to. To various uh, people, I mean, I, I, I hope that the book comes across as something that is not sort of uh, written from a uh, particular ideological perspective. Uh, and so uh, hopefully a lot of people can, can sort of recognize uh, the, the arguments in them. But, but, you know, obviously 
I think you're right. Humor is, is important. Popular culture uh, is important. Uh, you, you need something that, that, that appeals to, to emotions. Uh, and, and so I think yeah, you need broad alliances to, uh, and, and, and that was probably always the case when you needed to defeat whatever challenges there have been to, uh, to, to free speech, that, that uh, various constituencies need to be massaged in, in, in different ways. Right. One thing um, I'm convinced is um, a huge obstacle to winning this war um, is that until quite recently, people believed that as, free, as speech became freer, as restrictions began to fall away, as various... As, as, as free speech protections became embodied in international human rights law. So that was the tide of history. That was the direction. That was progress. Whereas now, one of the reasons we're faring quite badly and seemingly in reverse across multiple fronts, in retreat, is because the other side have persuaded people that they are on the right side of history. If you defend hate speech, you know, uh, and you continue to allow disgusting racists and bigots of various kinds to uh, say these harmful things about minorities, you're on the wrong side of history. And you get the feeling in publishing houses, um, uh, you know, the reason the publishers, the editors, the senior staff kowtow to the kind of bug-eyed, hysterical, 20-something woke Nazis is because they think that they're persuaded that they're on the right side of history. They are the future. They're not the future anymore. How do we up in that argument. How do we persuade people that, that how do we get rid of that fatalism? Okay, okay. I, I, I'll very quickly, ja Jacob, um, and then I'm going to come over to Joe as well, because actually you can try and answer some of that in terms of the side of history we're on, and you'll have loads else to say. Yeah, look, I've, 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 I've debated this a lot in the US, um, and I think the arguments, for instance, I, I didn't touch upon this in, in my speech, but one of the reasons why America is the most speech protective country in the world when it comes to the legal protection of free speech is very much the civil rights movement. Who The civil rights movement won a number of, of landmark uh, cases that expanded free speech because in southern states, um, southern states basically used various forms of censorship to, 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 to basically uh, entrench white supremacist rule. And, and as, as I show in the book, if you go, if you went to Alabama in, in 1836, that'd be a death penalty for for abolitionists for, for promoting abolitionist uh, ideals, and 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 I have to say that maybe and maybe this is only because it's been mostly at university level, but when you confront those who you call the woke with with these examples, it puts them on the defensive. It it makes it much more difficult for them. To, and, 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 and not just strategic, but I, I think they generally do not know this history. And, you know, it's, I didn't know it until fairly recently. Um, uh, and, and so I think there is some, some power in that, in, in being able to show the stories of actual people who were brutally repressed and, and, and censored that we celebrate today. Um, uh, so, so I think there is some value uh, uh, in that and, that, and that can sort of help um, take away sort of the, the, the moral superiority of, the, of that position. But what, I mean, Joe, I'm going to come to you because what I wanted, I know, because what I wanted to sort of pose to you is one of the things that drives me mad if you have the conversations and Joe's got much more experience of this if we go to universities is there's a real historic amnesia and so particularly young people will think that they are at the forefront of fighting 
oppression that no one's ever done it before. I mean, they, they will say things like, well, the problem with you older women is that you tolerated all of this, uh, you know, these kind of abuse, and we won't tolerate it because we're progressive, and we therefore want to ban misogyny hate crime. And you ca I mean, obviously you want to slap them. And it's a bit like, like, you put up with it because you are, you know, but, they, but so they're the most immediate. But just to say to you, Joe, I mean, I, I found things like the Weimar defence and your deconstruction of that absolutely fantastic because I just thought, right, I'm going to use all this yeah. stuff. So knowledge actually is a great way of helping confront some of these things because sometimes they have their tropes and I've got mine. There's no point, really. You need as many layers as possible. But any thoughts from you, Joe, on this? Yeah, no, well, I, I completely agree. I don't think, I think you're, you're doing yourself a disservice by saying that you hope this book is of some use. I, I think it's of enormous benefit. I think setting out this reasoned argument, this very detailed history, is, is a vitally important task. And I'm very glad you did it, and it hasn't fallen to me or someone else to have to do this, because it really is a monumental task that you've undertaken. And I, I do think it's genuinely to the benefit of everyone in the free speech movement. I mean, your, your book's called Free Speech, and obviously it is detailing 2,000 years and kind of across continents history of free speech. But likewise, what it also does is it gives us the history of censorship yeah. over that yeah. time. And the book could be called kind of censorship, yeah. if you wanted to put it that way. And I think what's so useful in having the book of this length is that it really does show how um, over 2,000 years, the very same arguments for censorship um, crop up again and again. I mean, not just the same arguments, but actually the same language, the same rhetoric, the same metaphors are employed again and again. This idea that free speech should be for the elites, not the masses. Uh, this idea that it's possible to outlaw offence, and you see that is different words are used throughout different periods of time, whether it's blasphemy or heresy or the need to promote emotional safety or to protect people from psychological harm, obviously with the protection kind of being outsourced to the powerful, uh, the idea of censorship occurring through social shaming. You know, these things might take on slightly different appearance at different times, but, but these things are, are recurring again and again in different contexts and fighting for free speech, it's only in reading this book kind of through, you realise like what a game of, of kind of whack-a-mole it is. As soon as you knock down one argument for censorship, another one springs up and you're kind of then fighting and challenging that argument instead. Um, but I think just on some of the broader points that people have been making here about uh, kind of the relationship between free speech, censorship and power, I mean, I guess, why I talk about the work having won, if you like, is because I think it's very revealing. You know, if you want to find out who's won, look at what you can and can't say. And it seems to me that the key thing that you can't say at the moment, certainly not on a university campus, um, is that a woman is a biological reality, that, that to be a woman is to be somebody with a vagina, to put it very, very bluntly. And you try going on to a university campus and saying that, or you know, even in the arts world, or publishing, or many media um, institutions, you know, that's where you realise the limits of free speech. And it seems that the people who um, actually have the power in society today, even though they like to deny it and like to present themselves as victims, in a way, it's presenting themselves as victims that, that gives them their power, uh, gives them their status in society. You know. 
those people who are able to enforce that limit, that this is what you're not allowed to say, who can appeal to either a cultural uh, majority or appeal to the law or appeal to a big tech census, they are actually the powerful people. It is a double-edged thing though, and you know, I would never say one for all time because the very fact that they need to um, make recourse to laws and legislation in a way is revealing of the insecurity of their position if they were completely confident that they won this argument socially, uh, morally, politically for all time, they wouldn't need to recourse, uh, recourse to censorship to enforce um, their beliefs and, and political principles. So I think it does expose some very interesting kind of different power balances throughout society and it shows us how power has shifted. But yeah, I agree with Toby. I mean, I, I thought the most exciting bit, bit about your book and the thing that you highlighted so very, very well there is really it is about this connection between free speech and democracy. And you look at every revolutionary change that's taken place throughout history, uh, every genuinely progressive social development, your book shows how that was preceded by demands for free speech or developments in free speech in the kind of years or decades prior to that huge social and political change having taken place. And I think that's really tremendously inspiring. Um, just, I suppose to all of you, and then I'm going to go out to the audience, um, there is a bit of tension. You've just actually suggested there, Joe, that... Um, it's a defensive posture, and I recognise this, that, that there's a kind of... that The arguments aren't being won, as it were, by the people who want to close down debate, because they actually demand that there are laws to protect them, or they... guidance or whatever, it's regulations. Now, this is a tension, because a lot... And you say it indicates weakness. But there's quite a lot of discussion in the UK, and it's obviously not just confined here, that, in fact, free speech... Campaigners need to use the law, get things in law, have charters, you know, and, and we look over at the US enviously and say, God, we want a kind of free speech amendment, that kind of thing. And I know it's a tricky one, but any thoughts on, in terms of changing the culture, or do we need to, are we, because we're on the defensive, do we need to, to, to think about the law? I don't want to get into the details of the particular, you know, the Academic Freedom Act, which I know there's a... I, I just mean, what, how, what's the kind of balance there, uh, do you think? And maybe you just like sort of say first. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, if I were to choose between uh, the culture and, and the legal protection, I, w I, would, I would go with the culture. But I think, you know, uh, what you really want is you want a culture of free speech that inspires strong legal protections. And I think that, that is what, what happened in the United States. So, you know, as I mentioned, you know, a, cen a century ago, you could be sentenced to 10 or 20, 20 years in prison if you were to uh, oppose a draft uh, in, in, in the United States. The, the wording of, of the First Amendment was the same. You know, you, you could have red yeah. scares yeah. And, 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 and so on. Today, it's the most speech protective uh, constitutional pr provision in the history of, of mankind, uh, uh, properly. Uh, and, and I think it, it's, it's immensely helpful that they have that legal protection, but undergirding it is, is, is a culture of free speech. Now, in this country, because um, 
be, because elitist free speech has had such a, a, a powerful pull on the <laughs> on, on, on the political culture in, in this country, and the, the, the culture of free speech in this country, I think, has, has, has worked in both ways. So on the one hand, there have been times where, <clears throat> where, where, where there's been, comparatively to other places in Europe, there's, there's, been, there's been a lot of free speech uh, in, uh, in, in the UK, even though there's no law or constitutional pr pr protect, uh, provision uh, protecting it. Um, on the other hand, um, this elitist conception of free speech, which, which I think still uh, is, is, has, has rather much pull in, in this country, means that the lack of legal protection uh, is, is, is sometimes a disadvantage. Yeah. I, 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 I think your, the points that, Joe, you were making there about the kind of democratic nature of uh, uh, um, free speech that is so well described and the progressive movements and so on, for me, that's sometimes when we talk about the culture of free speech, we 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 forget to give it some oomph, which is it's got to involve people because it's not just like creating a nice cultural atmosphere where people who are free speechers can hang out because that can just be like an echo chamber. So it's got something to do with a kind of a broader kind of social relationship between free speech and people's desire for change or what have you. It, it's, it's basically, yeah, I think it's, it's basically that the general acceptance among a critical mass of citizens that free speech is the antithesis of, of, of violence, basically, and, and that tolerance is, is needed for a society, a, a flourishing society, where, you know, you can be good neighbors, colleagues, uh, spouses, lovers, and, and, and compatriots, and even though you disagree fundamentally about uh, basic values or, or, or religion. And, and uh, there have been at times in, in the history where we've seen, looked at such dis differences as sort of a national security threat, sort of, you know, if you have that religion and not that one, you know, uh, th that's a national security threat. Uh, but, yeah. No, I think you can have all the legal protections for free speech that you like, and if you haven't got a culture that's actually open to free speech, it becomes completely meaningless. And I think you see this contradiction right at the very, very heart of government. So we've got the very same education secretary, Nadim Zahawi, who's intent on, on pushing through the higher education free speech bill, which lots of people would um, applaud for enshrining in law some basic rights to free speech. But in the very, very next breath, uh, he then talks about wanting to, and I quote, kind of crack down on university lecturers who are claiming to be kind of pro-Putin. Now, the very fact that he doesn't see any contradiction between those two positions, arguing for free speech in higher education one day and arguing that he's going to crack down on academics with particular views the very next day, you know, kind of at very best suggests that there's real confusion about what free speech means here. But also um, kind of begs the bigger question, you know, how safe is free speech really in the hands of these people who are going to be changing legislation but have so little understanding of what it actually means, the idea that you can kind of crack down on people for having certain views. I mean, that's McCarthyite. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, on that point, Claire, um, I think I agree with Jakob that um, law is downstream from culture and the critical battle to win in the long term is the cultural battle. But we often find that um, the culture of free speech in institutions, particularly universities, but not just universities, um, has reached such a kind of critically endangered point 
that in order to protect people who are penalised in some way, placed under investigation, ejected by those institutions, you can appeal to the documents that those institutions make public, which are declarations of their values, in which, for the most part, they say they're going to protect and defend free speech. And actually, there are legal protections which are kind of um, which 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 we find ourselves appealing to regulations, policies, actual laws all the time to protect people, to catch out these institutions trying to cancel dissidents. Um, and the battle for us, I think, uh, the really critical immediate short-term battle, as we've learned today with the online safety bill being published, is just to stop the law getting worse. I mean, there does seem to be a, 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 a something, you get the impression that there are these kind of people combining and conspiring in WhatsApp groups to try, I mean, you know, there was a hate crime and public order act passed in Scotland last year, where that we're currently consulting in Northern Ireland about a hate crime bill in Northern Ireland, which is almost identical, written by the same people, seemingly, as the Scottish Hate Crime and Public Order Act. The Law Commission of England and Wales, which you referred to, has proposed a hate crime and public order bill in England and Wales. And, um, you know, they are organised and they are trying to change the law to make it much less protective of free speech. So that, in the short term, is where the action is. Okay. Um, audience, let's, let's take a few thoughts, and, and I'll keep going back to our... I'll treat them as a panel now. Um, so... Brilliant, really, really loving this. Um, when, you, when you, as we all probably know, when you're defending free speech, you normally find yourself in a position of defending people that you quite vehemently disagree with and who are saying often horrible things, but you're defending their right to say it. Um, and that's one of the things I would really appreciate about the Free Speech Union, is that it has brought to light cases where people aren't saying, you know, very nasty things. Actually, they're sensible people, but their rights are being trampled. But um, the, the key issue for me, I think, in, in the debate today is that a lot of uh, activists against free speech kind of do realise these historic developments and that they were important in the flourishing of human freedom. But they, they have this idea, which I think kind of goes back to, to Marcuse, this kind of you mustn't tolerate intolerance. You know, it's the problem is, back then it wasn't intolerance stuff that we were permitting, and now it is. And that seems to be a real shift that the argument is, is, is pivots to, yes, we are tolerating things that we must not tolerate, that's why it's so moral. Just not, we shouldn't be tolerating this stuff, even though we might think, well, it's quite healthy for people to voice these things. The problem for them is that you have to draw a line there. I mean, you should not tolerate intolerant things. And that's a really difficult argument to answer, I find. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's, al it's also fascinating that, that whilst that's true, there's also um, a, a lack of tolerance of things in the past, as we know. So then you actually look back and refuse to tolerate them. Um, oh, you've gone away. Um, right, because... Um, you stand up. That, la that lady there. Hi, I think there's another element that we haven't touched on at all, and that is the power that economics has in completely crushing the culture of free speech. It used to be the adage, go woke and go broke, but now being woke has become extremely profitable. Um, we see LBGT stuff across all organisations. They make a lot of money at these events, very cynically and not honestly but then promoting those values and silencing other people is extremely profitable for them. And on the other side of the fence, when it comes to litigious activities, companies have to take the side of, I don't want to take that risk, I could be sued, 
which means they often take very repressive, uh, repressive approaches to free speech within companies and on their own on their own speech on social media. Um, and for example, it becomes unsafe to speak freely at work because of the economic risk to you, because you could be sued or you could lose your job for saying something innocuous that doesn't fit with the woke agenda that's apparently popular these days. And I used to be someone who would go to protests and say, you can't say that. So I'm a convert <laughs> to free speech. So I, I feel, so I understand the other side. And I just think it's really important to consider that because for some people that's absolutely critical that they cannot speak out because they need to keep their house, they need to keep their job, they don't want their business to go down, don't want to be subject to a, a council culture attack and lose everything. Okay, thank you. And the person in front of you. I'm interested in how we win the argument on free speech, and I wonder if there is a subtle but important distinction to be made between the right to speak and the right to hear. And the advantage of pitching the argument in favour of the right to hear is that it forces people to think about the rationality and the common sense of the public, which is actually um, quite a good argument, because when you think about all the arguments about so-called dog whistle politics, which is frequently trotted out by people who oppose the right to free speech, what they're really saying is that we, we think humans are a little better than dogs, and that they're you know, just a racist throng waiting to be whipped up by some other <coughs> god. And I, I do think there is a, a slight issue and a slight problem with the, the, the right to speak, which is that it obviously depends how it's pitched, but it can easily be posed as quite a libertarian argument, celebrating the right of the individual. Whereas if we think more in terms of a communitarian argument and the right of the public to think, um, then that enables us to recognise that actually there are harmful things that can be said in society. But our defence to those harmful things is the rationality and common sense of the public. So I'm not suggesting that the FSU changes its name to the FHU, because I think that would be rather inelegant, but uh, I do think that there is a point to be made about the argument, which is essentially that what we're concerned about here is the right of everyone to hear and think for themselves. Thank you, that's very useful. Jacob, do you want to kind of respond uh, yeah. straight away to that? Because yeah. it fits in with your misinformation stuff and it's, and, as well, well, in a way. Um, yeah. I, I think you know, the best short speech um, ever written on, on free speech was by Frederick Douglass, the, the, the great uh, American abolitionist, who was born a slave, uh, escaped, and became sort of a, a great orator and, 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 and journalist. And uh, so in 1860, there was an abolitionist meeting in Boston. Uh, he was about to give a, a speech uh, on abolitionism and a number of white Bostonians, well-to-do Bostonians, disrupted, heckled the meeting uh, because they were worried about their commercial interest in the South and also about, of, of course, the, the Union uh, and, 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 and the possibility of, of civil war. And uh, Frederick Douglass writes uh, a plea for free speech in Boston, which basically, if you read it today, is probably two pages, and it basically rebuts every contemporary argument against free speech today, even though it, it was written. And he actually says, um, uh, and I quote, equally clear is the right to hear, to p suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer 
as well as those of the speaker. So, so he makes this argument quite, quite, uh, quite eloquently, I think. You know, it's not just his right to speak uh, against the abolitionists. It's also those who, who, uh, who wanted to listen and engage with this argument, whether they agreed with him uh, or, or not. So, so I think uh, that freedom of, of speech and access to information is, uh, go hand in hand. And, and, and I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right that that's a critical that's a critical argument because you know even if you even if you were to say oh there are some yeah, some individuals whose whose rights are, are sim uh, whose, whose whose views are simply so abhorrent that we should uh, that that we should uh, that, that we should ban them well who do you trust to give the power to decide that on behalf of everyone else and you know I'm someone who you know I I actually want to be confronted with what RT and Sputnik uh, say about uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine, it, you know, I, I, I happen to think that the Russian propaganda is pretty pathetic and, and, and doesn't work uh, particularly well. But I want to be, you know, it, it tells me something about the regime and the, and the way uh, and the way it thinks. Uh, and and, and uh, so, so I think, yeah, I, I very much agree with your take on it. Okay, um, want to pick up on anything, Jen? Yeah, just very quickly. About uh, just on the very last thing that you were saying there, about two, it must have been about three weeks ago now, I was putting my bin out onto my street and my next door neighbour was doing the same at the same time, so we were having one of those kind of garden fence conversations as you do. And she's an old lady who lives on her own, she's, she's well into her 80s. And um, of course, kind of neighbourly conversation at that time turned to the war in Ukraine in the space of about 30 seconds. And she told me completely out of the blue, we don't really talk about politics, uh, she, she always watches RT and uh, she's very interested in it because she always wants to know what the Russians are hearing um, and what is it that they are being told. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating, went in, turned my telly on and learned that she wouldn't be able to do that anymore and felt vaguely sorry for her that she wouldn't be able to get that source of information. But it does make me think, you know, um, what we've talked about already quite a bit this evening, I've certainly talked about a lot in the past about the need to kind of make cultural change rather than legal change too if we really want to um, bring about a situation where free speech is valued and what does it actually mean to bring about that that cultural shift to have free speech being valued because free speech is obviously quite an abstract thing and if you think about people who um, we might classify free speech um, advocates might classify as their kind of opponents if you like our, our enemies for want of a better word um, they very rarely come out and say, you know, we're in favour of censorship. You know, what do we want censorship? When do we want it now? You know, what, what they do is they talk about the need to protect vulnerable people. Um, they talk about the need to kind of level up the playing field, redress um, inherent power imbalances. And all of those arguments give a massive moral heft to what they're saying. It makes it look as if kind of they've got morality on their side. And I think when we're thinking about making cultural changes rather than talking about defending free speech in the abstract, we almost need to go a step or two back beyond that and think how can we take the moral high ground? Um, how can we make the case that people like my neighbour you know, she might look elderly and vulnerable, but actually she really wants to hear what the Russians, find out what the Russians are hearing, and she should have every moral right to be able to do that. Um, she doesn't need protecting, whether it's from the EU or Sky Television. You know, she should be able to make those decisions for herself. How do we turn that into a kind of morally attractive argument? Uh, Toby, anything you want to pick up? 
Um, I'm persuaded. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, it, it, the, the, what you were saying about um, uh, the suppression of free speech in the workplace, I mean, we, we increasingly find ourselves having to come to the aid of people who haven't said anything unlawful and got into trouble for that reason in the workplace, but they've said something which um, uh, is, it breaches an unwritten speech code, um, which often they're not aware of because they're you know in their 50s and maybe a little bit on the spectrum. Um, not all of them. Um, and um, uh, uh, and we've been thinking about. I was looking round at everyone else. Now. <laughs> we've been thinking about um, how to protect those people. And often company companies will say, well, our social media policy is that if you say anything that brings the companies uh, into disrepute. That's a breach of our social media policy, which is incredibly vague and open-ended. And if someone complains, or if um, stop funding hate, or a Twitter mob kind of attacks someone for saying something, then they brought the company into disrepute, QED. They need to be punished. And one thing we've been thinking about campaigning for is an amendment to the um, Employment Rights Act 1996, whereby it would become unlawful for companies uh, to punish employees. Um, uh, if, they, if they say something, uh, if you're going to punish them for saying something that's harmed the company, you have to show that the company's been tangibly harmed in some actual way. You have to be able to evidence that, and the burden of proof is on the employer. And we also want to accompany that with a 12-month statute of limitations, so you can't be mobbed for something you said more than 12 months ago, so try and stymie the offence archaeologist. But I think that, that the attractive thing about that is it's a workers' rights campaign. It's strengthening workers' rights against the bosses, and you'd think you might get one or two trade unions kind of uh, making common cause on that morally uplifting front. Um, I, I also think there's obviously the more informal chilling aspect, which is that what happens is, is you're frightened to speak. So, you know, the, the right to listen is because you, there, you there, there's no conversations going on anymore in a lot of workplaces because it actually has the chilling impact that you don't know what will happen if you say the wrong thing. Um, but anyway, listen, uh, there's no chance, right? Right, so that gentleman there, and then I'll come over to you and do a little whiz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a, a two-part question for Jacob or anyone interested. Um, so the, the reason, uh, perhaps, that we have less restriction now is that we, uh, there are prior reasons why we have less need of it. So the um, first question, first reason why we have less need of restriction, your Socrates and your Abdel through the Agora and, and you know, so considering these extraordinarily difficult questions, you need full freedom of thought to explore these incredibly difficult questions you're arguing about. If, however, you have a fundamentally reductive view of the world, um, you don't need a great deal of space for intellectual exploration, because for the reductive mind, answers are always easily found. You ask, what is my experience? Or you ask, what does my in-group think? Or what does my newspaper think? Um, so if that is correct, um, does it follow that um, uh, free speech activism, which, which I do and many people here do, is actually window dressing. If we really want to secure free speech, we need a, an intellectual culture and society that needs it, just like Socrates needed it. Um, and to do that, really, we need to uh, sort of reverse the intellectual degradation of the academy. We need to be a society that needs uh, freedom to explore. The second question, the Quick. second reason why we need less free speech, um, it is what we call legal uh, productionism. That um, the best reason for freedom of speech politically 
is that it, it's what enables you to argue for what your rights should be. That's why it's the, the paramount right. But in cultures where rights aren't secured through political means, through argument, through protest, where they're secured through legal action, like in the United States, like in Europe under the Convention, there's less need of freedom of speech. If you want to defend your rights, you don't do it in this country through the streets and through argument. You hire a lawyer. And so that's another reason why there's less need for free speech and therefore less free speech. That, la that latter point is one of the reasons why I'm wary of the legal rules, because all you have to do is get the lawyers in. You never have to. And I see it happening with the gender-critical uh, debate, that so many gender-critical feminists spend long, less time arguing about how they're going to win the arguments than working out what their legal strategy is. I understand it, but it doesn't make it sensible, yeah. Uh, one of the things I think is central to a democracy alongside free speech is the pillar of the rule of law. And it seems to me in Western democracies, the rule of law in this area is breaking down rapidly. Why do I say that? Because so often in the cases that I've studied of free speech in this country, um, the court transcripts is very clear from the existing law that the, the, the person who is accused, they haven't broken any law at all in so many of the cases, and yet they go through all this stress, financial, emotional, etc., going on for years, that, that ends in a court action that may or may not be on their side. That should not happen. And I think one of the problems is hate speech is so, so subjective. If I belong to a minority with a persecuted history and I say, I'm offended, you are the bigot and I'm the one who's offended. I'm the one who's going to, the whole world has to stop and listen to me. If I have a history, if my group has a history of quote unquote the oppressor, when I speak, I'm the bigot and you, the one who has offended me, you're the, you're the one who needs to be investigated. So there's no objectivity in this. It's all about offense in the eyes of the, the one who has, who's been hurt. Where's the objective standards? Where's the equality? Okay. Okay, thank you. Toby mentioned that actually there's lots of discussion arguments which are useful, but it doesn't allow us to kind of address the what is an emotionalism that people emphasize when they talk about these these questions. And I and I think it's important that, that the culture that we're in now is is very emotional. It's psychologized, it emphasizes our vulnerability and weakness in the way that we look at the world, the way that the world we interface with the world. And therefore I think that's why um, Jacob's book is so important is because it gives a historical perspective of how people have fought for their rights and how they've used free speech to do that and asserted their moral autonomy and moral authority to, to, to self-determination and that there's a lot of people that don't, particularly younger people, who don't seem to have an historical understanding of those things and if they're people who really believe in freedom and equality in <coughs> groups then you would thought they'd looked at it but that's you know, that's not important, they seem to emphasise that sort of moral authority that they feel that they have by caring more. Um, and, I, and I think that that really matters, and, I, and I've got a sort of thought and question. 
the thought is, like, I think we need books like this for children, because in schools, <coughs> kids are not hearing this stuff. They're hearing about the emotional arguments about how to protect certain groups. And it would be great to have more of this in schools and for parents to use with their kids. And then the question is um, around, uh, I've been listening to you on podcasts, and one of the things that you've mentioned is that you think that um, free speech has been something that's been cultivated as a value alongside other values like freedom and um, universalism and so on. And in a way, it's a patch, you call it a software patch on what is on humanity, which would otherwise kind of revert to wanting power relations and stopping people from speaking ideas that they don't agree with. And I, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, um, because that doesn't sound very human to me. So I'm, I'm interested in what you think about Okay, great. Listen, I can, I can only take a couple more people. So I've got you, and then I've got a person right at the very back who's had his hand up from the start. Sorry, sorry. I was hoping I could introduce a bit more <coughs> the historical background, uh, the, the emergence of free speech, which I kind of suggested. Um, because it's kind of interesting if you look back um, and where the idea of free speech was very popular or became popular, became an idea. Uh, Athens, obviously, and then most powerfully in Britain and America, and to a lesser extent in France. And the, 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 to me, the, the distinguishing characteristics of all those places is that they were all quite highly homogeneous societies. The Athenians famously despised everybody else, and especially other Greeks. And free speech was for them. It was their prerogative. And I think you could say the same of Britain and, and, and America. That's the English, English tradition uh, derived from English common law. That uh, it's every man's God-given right to freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of association. Those are the most important things. And I think it's very often neglected. People neglect the way in which these ideas are inevitably related to who we are. Um, the British and American tradition is something that could only, uh, that could develop that, that kind of idea. I don't think you would have got that in Central and Eastern Europe. Highly uh, divided societies uh, occupying the same contiguous space. You wouldn't get that. And and so it, it leads you with a, to, with a very difficult question, which is that maybe it is all about uh, group uh, struggle uh, and, and conflict. I mean, you mentioned the civil rights movement. Quick. Yeah. You know, where, where did the civil rights movement get us to? You know, to Al Sharpton, Stacey Adams, and all these other people uh, in, in, in the United States. And you're left with the question, is it? It's just their own power, their, the, group, the power of their own group that they're trying to uh, enhance at the expense of everybody else. Okay, thank you. Controversial. And then uh, last person, yeah. yeah. Graham, you're very interesting evening, but I'm going to exercise my free speech and it probably shocks some people, I'll say. The last two years, utter madness isn't just destroyed our free speech, it's destroyed our freedom movement with lockdowns and it's destroyed our freedom of bodily autonomy. It wasn't the same work for people that 
want to protect minorities. Well, I'm a minority who doesn't want these experimental injections. And we've been bullied and we've been harassed to happen, almost forced to happen in some cases, especially in Austria, with the back down now, against European international law. This is only, and the woke people support this oppression. It's kind of ironic when they say they support minority rights. So this is an even greater danger, and I'm not hearing this from anyone in the hall. I just want some response from the panel there on this matter. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Actually, you're, you're surprised. You say it might shock people. I'm shocked we haven't had more of that. But um, <laughs> I, uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask the panel to consider, but you won't be able to, but everyone to consider is, and, 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 and maybe Joe could really address it, is I don't like this idea of the woke people. I, I, I think it kind of like treats every, you know, it's like basically it's our fellow citizens who've got different politics to us or like the woke people. And I obviously do understand because I'm the victim of so many of these people who are new, the new power brokers. So it's not like I want to pretend I don't know what you mean. But I just feel as though it becomes a way of caricaturing our opponents so that you dismiss them as these, you know, woke people who are trying to, who are also the same people that want us to have the vaccine where we don't want it and all that was just being said. So I get a bit anxious about that myself. Um, but thank you very much for your questions. No chance that the panel can answer them. Let me just whiz across, and, and, and before I have uh, Jacobs give his final thoughts, I'm going to also make some announcements. But, Joe, your final thoughts just for now. Okay, just a, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, on your uh, last point there, Clara, about, about work. Um, yeah, I think there is a danger of caricaturing people. I mean, that, that is a real danger. But I also think there's a benefit and a, a purpose in being able to name um, a particular set of ideas. And woke is the word that is being used. And I think naming gives you a bit of power, actually, to be able to start pushing back and challenging these ideas. Um, on the comment right in the very, very back there, I just very quickly, I mean, I think one thing that's clear is that all censorship is a political act, whether it presents itself as, as such or not, that there's politics that's underlining it. And sometimes this is very explicit, sometimes it's not. Uh, one story I picked up on, and I'm sure people here probably know far more about this than I did because it was like literally just as I got off the train and I didn't have time to follow what was seems to be the breaking, one of the breaking stories today. Um, I'm sure people will remember before the US election, the last election, um, there was this story in the New York Post about Hunter Biden's laptop and his emails. And um, the New York Post was basically cut off Twitter, social media. Uh, this story was completely silenced. They weren't allowed to promote and people were not even able to share um, this story. Um, it seems like just this afternoon it came out that the New York Times have now said, well, this was true, you know, these emails did exist. I might be very wrong, don't quite, you know, this is like something that I just picked up on just before coming in this evening. But, but what I wanted to get at really was what is the impact of this? If that story had been allowed to run on social media before the election, people would have read it, people would have agreed with it, disagreed with it, shrugged, it would have got stuck in the brain, we'd be over it by now. The fact that this story was kind of censored, I think it has a really bad effect on people. You know, I've actually had a few conversations with people, the most disturbing conversations I've had with people in the past couple of weeks have been people who've actually told me that there is no war going on in Ukraine, believe it or not. You know, people, I'm serious, people telling me that, you know, this is just a kind of media plot, that this 
is all part of the Great Reset, you know, that this is some conspiracy, and that I shouldn't be so foolish as to believe everything that I see on the television when I say that there is a war actually going on in Ukraine right now, that Russia has actually invaded Ukraine. And I think that kind of really pervasive cynicism, that really conspiratorial mindset, is a huge problem, but it's a problem that comes from this censorship sure, that we've got. Very, very finally, quickly then, on the, the point that you made over there about emotion, I think it's a really, really important point. I guess one of the way I would, I would see this is that when people who were in favour of censorship use emotional arguments, there always seems to be talking about pity. That seems to be the number one emotion that they try to get us to feel, to feel sorry for people. You know, we should pity these people, and so we need censorship to protect these kind of rather pathetic little people um, who, you know, would just be harmed if we didn't have censorship. Actually, I think we can use emotion in a much more inspiring way than that and look at examples of, of people demonstrating huge moral bravery and courage um, in defending free speech and kind of use that form of emotional argument rather than just feeling the need to, to resort to pity. Thank you very much, Jen. Um, yeah, no, interesting. What's the connection between... Um, uh, wokery and um, the response across the Western world to the pandemic, um, and particular, particularly the fact that so many Western governments went all in on the vaccines and um, did make uh, uh, concerted efforts to suppress any information that was likely to make people more vaccine hesitant. I think the connection is that uh, it's to do with this concept of elite panic. Um, the meritocratic class, the cognitive elite, I think have suffered a series of terrible blows to their reputation, um, uh, their legitimacy as our rulers. So there was the disastrous war on terror, there was the global credit crunch, and we saw the kind of populist revolts in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, seemingly a response to a loss of faith in increasing mistrust uh, that the cognitive elites knew what they were doing and were best placed to govern us. Uh, and that's why I think they went all in on, well, he, our, 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 our claim to, to, to rule uh, is we're going to deal with this virus. We're going to save you from this global pandemic. Uh, uh, lockdowns, that's the way to go. And now we've produced the vaccines. Take the vaccine, you'll be okay. It was a desperate attempt prompted by panic to restore the legitimacy of the discredited meritocratic elite ditto with the woke kind of religious cult. It's like, we're not just your social and economic superiors, and I can see why you might resent us having so much more than you and having such better lives than you in almost every dimension. We're also your moral superiors, um, and we know what's best for you, and we're going to set ourselves up as custodians of your moral welfare, and we're going to control what you can say and what you can see on social media, because it's a cesspit. It's the Wild West. It needs to be sanitised. Ordinary people need to be protected from it, and we know best. That sort of seems to be the thinking partly behind the online safety bill. So that's, that's the kind of link, I think, between the rise of wokery, this, their claim to kind of be morally superior, had a monopoly on virtue, and the kind of panicky, uh, knee-jerk response to the global pandemic. And my concern is that as mistrust grows and, and suppression of dissent to attempt to discredit and smear dissenters will only increase mistrust. Uh, we know this from reading Jacob's book. We know what happened in Weimar, Germany. My concern is that as mistrust grows, as people lose less, as people begin to lose faith in the mainstream media, in, in, 
in, in, in, in our institutions. Um, so there will be some, another populist revolt which dwarfs the last one. And our responsibility is to try and channel that in a constructive way so we don't see some horrible kind of bloodletting uh, following uh, a populist revolt which dwarfs the populist revolts we saw in 2016. I think that could be coming towards us and we need to start thinking and worrying about that. Suppression okay, is you. not the way right. to deal with it. I I'm going to just make a few announcements. I want you to give us an upbeat finish. You know, like, oh my God. Right. Let me make my announcements while you're building up your final thoughts. Right. So, first of all, um, a, a couple of thanks, and, and they're important thanks because you can't organise free speech events without people putting the work in uh, behind the scenes. So, I would like to thank uh, Jan Matvarish and Katie Howes from the Free Speech Union for their contribution to this and Alistair Donald from the Academy of Ideas for the work that he's done. Um, we talked about the fact that, you know, maybe there's, you know, publishers aren't necessarily queuing up to publish books like this. I mean, we, we, we know there's a problem of publishers cancelling books that might be controversial. So can we absolutely uh, thank Basic Books UK for publishing this book? I mean, that's absolutely to their credit. Uh, I'd, I'd like to thank therefore. Sarah, it, it doesn't just be a kind of like thank the publisher nod. You know, this is like thank you very much, Sarah, from uh, 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 Basic Books. And also uh, uh, to Amy Stewart, who, who's the Ruth, uh, uh, um, sorry, to Amy Stewart and Ruth Killick at Publicity. Is that, is that, have I got that right? But I want their job to be made a lot easier by us actually doing the publicity for the book. So I do hope that you will not only buy it, but talk to people about the ideas you've heard. Uh, there was a question asked about, you know, it was a shame not to have heard more, about, heard more about the history and all the kind of tensions. That's one reason to buy the book and read it and kind of, and, and kind of go through all of that. Um, so... After we finish, then go and buy the book and, 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 and get it signed even. The, the books are being sold um, by uh, Primrose Hill Books who are here tonight. There's a, there's a few stalls out there and go and find out more about the Free Speech Union, also the Free Speech Champions. And they've got this great magazine, the Free Speech Champions, free thinking for a new generation, the new taboo. And when I say we shouldn't caricature things... I mean, I did write a book in which I called all young people snowflakes, so I can't really <laughs> talk. Um, but actually, one of the fantastic developments is where you get the snowflake generation actually fighting back and saying, how dare you, we are not going to be uh, branded in that way. And so, free thinking for a new generation, it's those young people, hearts and minds, that we need to win and encourage. So get, gra grab a copy of the new taboos. And then, uh, I suppose, the final advert bit is that um, the Academy of Ideas has got a stall and uh, you should join the Academy of Ideas, of course, after you've joined the Free Speech Union, of course. <laughs> um, but actually, one of our lockdown projects um, that we did at the Academy of Ideas was we started publishing these new little pamphlets called Letters on Liberty. And the latest three are out. Uh, uh, Translation as Liberation uh, by Vanessa Popovich. Defending the Digital Self by Tracy Follows and The Future of Free Speech by yours truly, our great author, Jakob. <laughs> girl. I concede, I was wrong. Right, um, and um, the point of these pamphlets, and I hope that you'll you know, get subscription, was to try and emulate something from the past, which was the pamphleteers. Right, the, the pamphleteers who said, 
we are dissidents and we want to you know, have new arguments and they brought out pamphlets. They often got arrested and, uh, and distributed them. You, that won't happen. But they went around the public houses and the cafes and they, they were cheap little things that you could read and then hand on to your neighbour. And I know that we've got the internet, but it's just not the same as beautiful pamphlets, right? So we've got hundreds of them now or growing in that direction. So please, genuinely, consider the fact that I realise that I can't keep saying J.S. Mill and quoting the same old quotes and using the same old arguments. We have to dig deep and come up with new ideas for how we win the arguments for free speech. It's what the pamphlets do and it's what the, back, uh, uh, what the book does. We're going to go to, I've got to read this out, the, the Three Tons Oldgate pub, and it, which is immediately to your, right, to your right as you come out of the building. It says here, there will no doubt uh, be St. Um, Patrick's Day revellers, but... Um, that will suit me, and the rest of you can buy me a drink, and Jakob as well. But Jakob, your final thoughts, please. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I just want to um, try and, and, and reply to some of the, the questions. The first is trying to push back against the, uh, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, free speech as, uh, as the, the consequence of ethno-nationalism. <laughs> um, uh, um, certainly you could find uh, xenophobia uh, among the Athenians, but uh, I think the, the, the among the Athenians, so they basically had two concepts of free speech. So one of them was isigoria, so equality of speech, which was political speech, and that was limited to, to Athenians, uh, the exercise of, of political speech. But they also had a broader concept called parousia, which, which means something like uninhibited speech. And someone like Aristotle, who was not an Athenian, could benefit from that. So, so it was a, a, it was a pretty open place where, where people could actually come and exercise free speech and, and, and spread ideas. And someone like Aristotle could, could come uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and teach uh, things that were not super, uh, always super uh, fond of, of the very democracy uh, in, in which he lived. Um, the first place in early modern Europe where free speech uh, really took off was the Dutch Republic, uh, the, the provinces, and that was a comparatively cosmopolitan place. So who were the champions of free speech there? Uh, one of them was a certain Spinoza, who, was called, who of course was Jewish and uh, a, a rather heterodox thinker when it comes to uh, religious uh, and, and, and philosophical uh, things. So, so uh, uh, the fact that he, had, and, and he actually makes the argument that in, 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 in order for a, a diverse society to thrive, you need free speech. So he makes a very, very modern argument that, that I think some, some people today have, have turned on, it, on their head. Sort of some people today argue that we need restrictions on free speech in order to have thriving multicultural societies. Uh, Spinoza um, basically argued the opposite, and I think that there's much, much for that. And even in Central Europe, if we go to the Edict of Torder from 1568, that's Transylvania, Central Europe, it's the first place in Europe where you had universal uh, uh, freedom of, uh, of religion. You basically protected uh, freedom of religion as an individual right long before anyone did it in, uh, in, uh, in Western Europe. And uh, whatever you might want to think about Al Sharpton, or uh, I think uh, it's, it, it, uh, it's pretty cynical to say that uh, the, the, the fights of the civil rights movement that went before that doesn't matter anything because you don't like uh, Al Sharpton uh, when, when, when you saw what the, 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 the difference that 
the, the fights that, of the civil rights movement meant. And also, you know, the civil rights movement is the reason why uh, someone like Donald Trump could not, uh, uh, you know, fulfill his hot ideas of going after the, the press in America. I mean, his, his big idea was he wanted to open up libel laws and sue the so-called enemies of the people uh, which, that, that were sort of ordinary journalists. He couldn't do that because of the First Amendment, because of the New York Times versus Sullivan decision, which was a case won by the civil rights movement. Uh, so I, I hope that pushes back against the idea. I think diversity has been absolutely essential for, for free speech. Um, when it comes to, uh, to intolerance, um, what I, I think what, I've, what you alluded to is that I, I, I've sort of argued on, on, on certain podcasts that, that the, the, the software, if you want, that we, that, we, that, that we are born with, that we've evolved over time is, is one that leans towards its, its default position is, is intolerance and then we've sort of developed this, this patch that, uh, of tolerance and free speech on top of that, but that is, is, is very vulnerable uh, because our default position uh, wants to override it uh, once uh, and, and therefore uh, it, it is quite fragile. I, I, I tend to think that that is that is that is, that is pretty accurate uh, still, I, and and you know, and and, and that's also why I, I I agree with this warning about sort of uh, framing the free speech debate sort of as, as sort of woke anti woke. Look at what's going on in the U.S. Who, who, where do you see the biggest number of laws or bills restricting free speech now? It's absolutely Republican-dominated states where Republicans want to limit what can be said in education, including in higher education, sort of on history, on race, and on gender. So that a, a, a huge onslaught by Republican state, which is a, which is, which is a sort of a, a, um, a backlash against, uh, against woke tendencies, but one which is, of course, completely antithetical to the idea uh, of free speech. And that <coughs> has to do with what I call Milton's curse in the book, uh, because one, one of the things you'll see if you buy the book, which of course all of you will, uh, is that many of the greatest champions of free speech found themselves compromising their big ideals and we're all uh, vulnerable to doing that. Uh, and, and this includes uh, Jim Milton, who thought censorship was really bad and press freedom was great, except if you were a Catholic, uh, in which case uh, press freedom was not such a great idea. Or uh, uh, in fact, press freedom was really only for reformed mainline Protestant sects and not uh, everyone else. Um, uh, uh, and I think we're, I think we're all uh, vulnerable uh, to that. Even, even Tom Paine, Tom Paine was hounded out of this country in 1792, was, was convicted for sedition in absentia, skipped over the channel to France, uh, became a celebrated revolutionary, and then uh, on the eve of the terror, what does Tom Paine do? He says, Oh, we got to crack down on calumny because calumny is now eroding uh, is now eroding trust in, in institutions uh, uh, in France. And John Stuart Mill did John Stuart Mill care about free speech in India? No, no. It was, you know, the Indians, You're meant to be cheering us on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Stuart Mill thought, oh well, they're sort of on the lower rungs of, of, of civilization, so press freedom wouldn't wouldn't matter one way uh, one way or, or the other, uh, and that's why I, uh, I I said that you know if we are to be serious about free speech, it's not you know you, we, we can't just say oh 
we're against the woke and then in, in favor of free speech. Free speech is something that you have <laughs> to, you have to fight against your own human impulses uh, and you have to very often hold your nose uh, and, uh, and, and, and argue. If, if, you, if, you, if you see yourself as someone who champions free speech but you find that you're only really uh, uh, defending people with whom you happen to, to agree, then I suggest that you're not in the business of defending free speech. You're in the, the business of tribalist politics, and that's fine. You know, free speech allows for that, but, but, but that's not what's going ultimately to advance uh, uh, free speech. Um, uh, um, yeah, I'll finish with that. <laughs> for listening to the podcast of ideas you can support us by subscribing sharing and leaving us a review check out our feeds for recordings from the battle of ideas festival archive and other academy of ideas events